0: Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to the Places With People podcast. I'm Daniel Platt, and travelling is important to me. If that's something we share, then this podcast is for you. You'll have the chance to hear from some of the best tour guides on the planet about the world's most interesting and unique places. We travel somewhere new every episode, to hear about life, culture, and history from fascinating people. Great local guides are the key. Theirs are the stories that will change the way you experience their world. This podcast is sponsored by Local Link Tours. That's a private tour company a maid and I started here in Melbourne eight years ago. We do some pretty cool things in cities all over Australia. So be sure to look us up next time you're exploring Down Under. For details on any of the guides we feature on this podcast, email me at danlocalingtours.com. Today, we're off to Kyoto, Japan. I have the great pleasure of chatting with Lee Zianji, a fabulous local guide who runs Craft Tabby in Kyoto. Our conversation covers a huge range of topics from local life in Japan, student life, history, travel, his favorite places around the country to visit. We talk about meditation, we discuss virtual touring. It's a super fun chat. I really enjoyed it and I hope you will as well. It's great to finally have you on the podcast, Lee. How are you doing?
1: Hello. Nice to meet you. I'm good.
0: Uh, So Lee's joining us from- cold in Kyoto today. Yeah, very cold, I bet. He's joining us from Kyoto, I was about to say. Um, And you run, uh, or you co-own and run a company called Craft Tabby, uh, and a hostel, you do virtual touring. You've also got a YouTube channel while you're renovating beautiful properties up in the mountains. You're a busy boy, Lee. Just started
1: yeah quite busy if, uh busy since COVID started because at first it was uh, uh I, w- I wasn't given giving any tours until July uh and that's when uh Airbnb was suggesting uh that I switch over to the virtual tours so I was actually doing actually doing stuff offline first like hikes and all that yeah. then they asked if I could go online and I thought well I have a dog she loves flowers and why don't I just bring people around the palace where, where there are lots of flowers so she she eats. She eats things like de- uh, not daffodils, but uh, uh, what do you call that? Uh, she eats flowers of all sorts. So <laughs> I brought people on a tour with a live camera, uh, pointing at different flowers, telling about them, about poems, and uh, when they get bored, the camera camera goes towards Mori, my dog, and they get to see this little dog running about, uh, chasing butterflies and eating eating flowers. So it starts <laughs> off with that, and then I became uh, there were more tours after that. Uh, and uh, yeah, over the last few months, I've been working on a house in the uh, Dutch, just down south of Kyoto, uh, re- repairing its a farmhouse that's like 90 years old. So I'm restoring it into be a, to be a farmhouse, uh, a farmhouse to be full of flowers. And then there'll be bees there also one day uh, so they can get bees. And Mori and my dog can run around there. So I've been busy.
0: Yeah, I've been watching some of those videos and it's they're very peaceful. It looks very cold though.
1: Uh, for now, yes, it will get warm again in, in summer. So it's uh, the opposite of what you have in Australia. Uh, mm. it's I guess it's. Is it warming up now?
0: We're sort of, I guess, oh, yeah, cooling to down the now, end sorry, of cooling summer, down now. But it will still be warm for a couple of months. We get our hottest weather probably in February and March.
1: All right. Yeah, that's the exact opposite for us. It's the coldest in January and February right here. So uh, today's, I think, the last day it will snow. Uh, we get this bit of snow and the next season is coming up in a few days. It's called uh, the start of rain. Japan mm. has 24 seasons. So uh, 24. The, the next season it comes up. Oh yeah, 24 seasons. <laughs> the calendar is separated into actually 72 divisions. So technically 72 seasons, uh, but 24 smaller seasons. So right now we are in the season called uh, the start of spring. That's a major big season. But the next one will be uh, the start of rain. So, when rains comes, it will be warming up and then uh, it will start, it will stop snowing, start raining instead.
0: Now, you're not a Jap- Japan local or a Japan native, sorry. You moved from Singapore, that's right?
1: Yep, I moved from Singapore about uh, nine and a half years ago. Uh, before this, I was in Singapore working as a journalist. I was shooting documentaries for a company called uh, Al Jazeera. So uh, Al Jazeera English. So uh, it was a small company that worked for Al Jazeera. So not directly under Al Jazeera. Uh, that's how most of the production firms work there. Uh, and I was traveling all across Asia, even parts of uh, Africa and uh, Europe for stories of different kinds. Uh, and it was always about politics. So I decided I wanted a political science degree. Uh, and Japan was offering scholarships back then for uh, one, of, one of the political science courses. So I, went, I came to Japan. Uh, it was in Tokyo at first and I studied there and I never left. <laughs> I love the country, the people, the food, uh, the dogs. Uh, so I've been here the last uh, nine and a half years.
0: Yeah. I can understand how that happens. I've I've been a few times. I've just, I've fallen in love with Japan as well. It's such a, an amazing place.
1: Have you come here to ski?
0: I haven't been there to ski. I was actually there at the end of winter a couple of years ago and I I'm a pretty passionate skier, but my partner doesn't ski and we just kind of uh, didn't have it on our agenda, but it's very popular for Australians.
1: Yes. Uh, most of the time you get Australians coming in uh, January, actually, because that's when you get the most snow mm. and uh, people go up to Niseko in Hokkaido, but actually I normally recommend that everyone goes goes to Nagano because Nagano is cheaper plus a uh, few people there. So that's, uh, yeah, that's, Australians normally come to Japan in January, February, I guess, January
0: yeah we're an intrepid bunch and we love to ski but the snow here can be quite fickle even though you do get snow only three hours out of melbourne there's some ski fields but it's not it's not reliable and of course it's the other time of the year it's sort of july august september right so big change going from two seasons in singapore wet and yeah, hot yeah, no. <laughs> to uh, 24 it's in japan
1: wet. it's uh, in Singapore, it's 30, t- I think 30 degrees uh, in a day, 32 sometimes, and uh, it's just that all year round. So I've been pretty much enjoying the weather here because uh, apart from the weather, you get the food changing from season to season. Uh, the, uh, because we have 24 seasons, uh, people like to match the food to the season. So you have a calendar with different foods to eat in different seasons. And that's what I really enjoy about coming to Japan because now when I go to the... Well, if you go to the supermarket, maybe not too much change. But if you go to the, uh, the local markets in Kyoto, you get all the special vegetables coming out and they come from a specific place. Plus they say, oh, this week is the best for this fruit. Please have it now. So that's, that's what I really enjoy about Kyoto.
0: Mm. People and, already
1: focus on the traditional foods.
0: And there's still a lot of like fresh produce, vegetables, fruit. Because obviously there's a fair bit that gets imported and we were amazed when we were there that you'd see that with the culture of gift giving as well, that you'd see these like stores oh. where they were giving away, sorry, my dog's barking in the background. <laughs> oh, okay. I'll have to bring him <laughs> in so Wally can meet Morrie because I'm sure they'd get along. Uh, the joys of, of uh, working from home. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we were amazed that you'd see like a strawberry or an apple and it would be all prepped up for, for gift giving and it would be in like a foam ah, case yes. and then wrapped in plastic and then put in a box and then the box would be wrapped in paper <laughs> and you just think this is something that grows on a tree and it's got seven different kinds of wrapping, what's going on here, you know? Yeah, and then it was busy. being sold this for hundred bucks. You
1: know, <laughs> I, think, I think the strawberry is hundred bucks. I think it has gone up to two hundred bucks for one huge strawberry. I think the white strawberry up north. Uh, because that's for gift-giving, yes. And I've been told that tastes fantastic, but I've not tasted it because it costs $100. Uh, but <laughs> in Kyoto, you can get actually che- vegetables for a lot cheaper, especially in the uh, if you go out to the countryside even. Uh, so I'm working on the farm in a place called Ryujin Mura. Ryujin is famous for its plum trees, apricot trees actually, not plum. And uh, also for mandarin oranges. And it's like one big bag for maybe $1, one, $1 Australian dollar. And it's all there on the streets. You taste it, it's very, very sweet. So that's that. And that's the supermarket gift-giving kind. So for me on the farm, I'm going to focus on the stuff that you can eat right there uh, without all the packaging. You you pluck it yourself
0: and uh, have the fruit on the table. Sounds like an ideal lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, so that's the plan for the farm. It'll be a
1: cafe farm thing.
0: And you want to live out there? That's the plan?
1: Yeah, so I'm planning to move there in April this year. Uh, right now, the house does need some repairs. So I'm I'm putting in gas. Uh, there's no gas in the room. The, the bathtub is like uh, wood-fired. Uh, so it's wow. uh, it's like going back 100 years. Uh, but right now, yeah, it does have electricity, but no plumbed in water. So it was well water and it was very inconvenient. So I'm putting in uh, pipe water from the, the, the village network. And uh, hopefully by April... I'll be able to move in uh, and then I'll start living there full time. So I'll continue doing virtual tours from Kyoto about forest bathing. I still have a forest bathing tour, but it will be based in uh, the village. And I'll also have a tour where you can look around the flowers and the different plants of the village, like life. So you can tell me where to, where you're going to look. So that's in the works.
0: Bit of a choose your own adventure. So you mentioned forest bathing and that's one of the virtual tours you have. I saw that one on Airbnb experiences and on your website and it looks like it's been pretty popular.
1: Yeah, so I was quite surprised because when Airbnb first told me that they wanted something online, uh, I was like, I can't bring a four and a half hour tour online. How is it possible? I go into politics, I go into tea, I go into the people's lives here, we talk to people. How can you bring something offline online properly? So it was only after I did the tour for Mori, the, the one focused on flowers uh, in the palace, that I thought, well, if there's a team and it's maybe one hour, one hour, one and a half hours long, uh, it could work. So I started doing it. And surprisingly, because uh, forest bathing is quite a narrow topic, you're you're focusing on how the gods in the forest help you with meditation. uh, That seems to work, and I lead people through guided meditation, like five different kinds on that tour, uh, on that experience. So uh, I've been doing that, and so far, I would say over a thousand, two hundred people have come on that tour, uh, like individual people. So wow. uh, last in December, because it was gift giving season, uh, there were companies bringing their their the, the employees on the trip, and there were there was Facebook, Google, Amazon, all the big companies, and that was that was a really busy period. Uh, so yeah, thousands of people have been, uh, a thousand people at least have been forest bathing virtually with me.
0: That's amazing. And so they get to virtually wander through the forest with you and take part in some guided meditations. And is that uh, sort of Shinto? Like, what's the background of those meditation practices?
1: So, uh, you may know that in Japan, we have Shinto, which is the religion where you have the belief in the gods of nature. The gods can live in trees, rocks, mountains. But then in Japan, we also have Buddhism. Buddhism came about 1,600 year, 1, years ago. And when it came in, of course, meditations, different sorts came to Japan. And today, both religions are fused together. You can't separate both together, which is why when you go to a big shrine, you sometimes find a temple inside. Or if you go to a big temple complex, you find a shrine inside. And a the shrine Buddhist is Shinto and a temple yeah, is, and is Buddhist. Yeah, shrine Shinto temple is Buddhist. Uh, just think... Uh, shrine S Shinto S so <laughs> Shinto Shrine and Buddhist temples but both practices come in together the two religions have come in together so you see the gods intermingling uh, Bud- the Buddha with various gods and meditation practices like uh, sitting meditation walking sweeping meditation all that has been brought together and Japan, both religions are fused yeah sweeping sweeping (laughs) if you're just listening Uh, along
0: and not watching uh, you'd be missing Lee holding up a big it's like a broom is it because it's not wicker I'm holding up I'm holding a broom made of uh, black bamboo
1: here a short piece of black bamboo and at the bottom it looks like a Harry Potter broom it's made of uh, palm trees so this is the traditional broom that has a uh, copper wiring tying up all the palm fronds, and you use this to to uh because the palm has very tiny pieces of fiber. It's used to uh to bring out dirt from the tatami mats, the the oh. grass mats we have here in Japan. So uh, these are used especially for homes, but you could do it with a normal broom. You don't have to have a special
0: broom to meditate. Mm. Okay, good to know.
1: Yeah, so I lead people through those guided meditations and so far uh the feedback has been good. People feel relaxed, they feel like they can it's more for people who want to get back into meditation or start with meditation. So it kicks off some gives them a bit of inspiration and uh then they feel like they can do it themselves too. So it's a bit about um having a mini holiday in Japan, but also about uh getting to to know what's in your mind better and to feel to, to learn some techniques to just sit down and relax a bit more. So that's the that's the forest bathing tour.
0: It sounds great i um look forward to organizing one for my team back here in melbourne because it sounds like a really fun thing to do is yeah, it, to it is it for you lee like i know there's obviously plenty of buddhism and that sort of thing in singapore but for you is it more of a wellness practice like what's do you have a personal connection to the traditions
1: so uh my dad brought me to a meditation center when I was 10 years old. And ever since then, I was uh, I had gone on to many different meditation retreats and all that. At one point of time, when I was 17, I went to a, uh, a temple in Singapore a lot. Uh, and I talked to the monks there, uh, even thought of becoming a monk at one point. I didn't go on that path, but uh, I've always been int- interested in meditation ever since, uh, ever since my, my dad brought me to that uh, meditation class one night. And then uh, when I came to Japan, I realized there were, there were all these other kinds of meditation going on, not just sitting down. Uh, of course, in Singapore, there was the walking meditation, which was quite popular. But if you come to the forest, you, you see people doing things with bowls. Like if you do sound meditation, I have a bowl in my hand right now. And the idea of sound meditation, for example, is listen out to the end of the sound. Only Close your eyes right now and you hear a sound come out. Only open your eyes when the sound completely goes away.
0: It's about now for me. (laughs) Sorry if anyone still going.
1: Actually, it stopped. Uh, It stopped earlier. (laughs) You can see (laughs) the waveforms on the recording devices uh, disappear. But anyway, the thing is, everybody thinks that the sound ends at a different time. So this is a game for the monks in Japan too. And I also did waterfall meditations with people in the mountain. And I realized there were so many other things you could do. If you feel like, uh, I can't sit anymore. I have to do something else there's always the the other meditations to do, which is when I got even more interested in meditation. And for the last four years, uh, I've been writing a book about, um, I've been trying to compile stories from the shrine. And eventually I want to publish a book about uh, forest bathing. So because I'm moving to the village where there are a lot lot of people doing waterfall meditation too, um, I'm going to expand my book to be about more forest bathing in general rather than just uh, Mount Inari, this this shrine that I'm uh, leading leading hikes at. So that's in the works. But uh, yeah. yeah, back to your question is uh, how do you get into meditation? That's the whole story.
0: Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very interesting um, topic, I think, these days because so many people have or would like to have a, a mindfulness practice. And for some, it is connected to a form of spirituality. and others, it's just about you know m- mental health and well-being. And I think there's obviously such a lot to be learned from these sometimes very ancient traditions and cultures so fascinating that you're really deeply immersed in it i, I wanna- say that
1: if you're watching uh, if i go back to that question again the the part about what meditation would be about it could be about wealth and health uh, wealth <laughs> health and wellness uh and the thing is that in in shinto the religion with the uh, the gods in nature the main point of meditating under waterfall let's say is to feel to like feel yourself to be one with the gods so you are Basically, that's wellness. You you want to to feel that you're part of the of nature cycles, mm. uh, and you want to feel what the water from the earth feels like. So you stand there to to get that sensation. But of course, there, there are traditions from Buddhism, and in Buddhism, you don't just meditate to feel good. You meditate to get enlightened. So you sit there and you you really look at what's going on in your in your minds. Any illusions that come in, you really want to see what's going on and. Uh, I'm not enlightened so I don't know what, what happens when you get enlightened but the idea is that when you meditate you could get enlightened and for Buddhism it's much more than just uh, wellness. Mm. So that's the wellness part but it could go much much deeper. Yeah.
0: Mm. Something to strive for for all of us a bit of enlightenment. <laughs>
1: And uh, if anyone wants to follow guided meditations uh, in Australia, uh, this is a shout out for the Buddhist Association of Western Australia, because there's a, there's a monastery there uh, and a Buddhist association there. There's a monk who guides people through meditation for free uh, every week on YouTube. So if you're in Australia, actually if you're anywhere in the world, uh, there's a monk in Australia doing that, a Buddhist monk. So that's something you could
0: do. It's the only way to feel connected to Western Australia at the moment. (laughs) They've got very hard borders. Um, I wanted to ask you, because it's it's interesting that you're talking about moving out into the countryside, into this farmhouse. And I remember yeah. when we were in Japan, I was hearing a statistic that, you know, like, Anecdotally if you ask people in the street what the you know population um how many people you know what percentage of the population live in rural areas people sort of think 40 50% and in reality it was something like less than 10% you know most people yeah. in Japan are living in the main urban hubs and there's some massive cities um like Kyoto and Tokyo and Osaka um I'm just curious firstly to to understand what the draw is for you and then i guess to ask if there's something similar happening there to what's happening all over the world where maybe you know in light of the the year that we've had the allure of the city is a little bit less powerful there's been this kind of decentralization and people are looking at the advantages of living a little bit further from high density urban environments
1: So uh, people have been talking about moving out to the countryside for a long time, but the draw of the city is that uh, you get a huge population where uh, not everybody knows each other, so you could meet new people and not feel constricted by your past. Uh, And also if you go to Tokyo, for example, there are shops for, especially shops for a lot of things. Like if you want, uh, let's say, if you want paint of a certain kind, just uh, natural paints, one whole shop, a big a whole shop filled with tubes. And if you want a bicycle shop, you can have a bicycle shop just for, let's say, a specific brand and you have this specific road tire. You can find everything you want in Tokyo. So that's the draw of the city. And even with COVID happening, people have been saying, oh, I want to move out of the city. But what they mean is about Tokyo itself, there's something called 23 Wards, that's central Tokyo. But then you have the other prefectures nearby. So Chiba Prefecture, Saitama Prefecture. That's sort of in the Tokyo area. And when people say they want to move out of Tokyo, they usually just mean that uh, they'll commute in, take a two-hour train right in, but they'll still be living in a big city-like area. So then they get the conveniences. Uh, and you know, right now, even with COVID, most people are just doing that, moving slightly further off the center of Tokyo. Uh, moving to the countryside though, there are problems because uh, firstly, the, it's inconvenient. Uh, the place I'm living, it's about two hours from the nearest train station just uh, in the village and the uh, uh, nearest supermarket that's about half an hour out, a small supermarket. If you want a big one with wines and all this stuff, uh, then you have to travel two hours out. So it is far out. And for most people living in the countryside, uh, they'll, they'll be saying, why are you moving here? It's so inconvenient. We have to drive everywhere. And uh, it's, so, it's so difficult to live here. So they're missing out on the nature part. I think they live people who live in nature, they miss out. They, they see nature all the time and they think it's normal. But if you live in a city and you get to a place without cars, uh, the trees around, the trees are huge, like many stories high and there are hundred are like thousands of them. Uh, the area I live in, the village that I'll be living in is about half the size of Singapore, the place that used to be from. And there are only 2,000 people instead of 4 million people. Uh, so is it 5 now in Singapore? I'm not sure. But Instead of a few million people, just two thousand people. And for me, uh, I'm looking for that sort of life where I want to I want to have some time to meditate, uh, plan my own stuff. But I guess uh, it's not it's not life for everyone because you might be interested in uh, doing business deals. You might be uh, in the petroleum industry. You might have to work with uh, refineries. So I'd say that right now, I don't think people are moving on en- on mass to the rural areas of japan so it looks like it'll still be 10 percent rural 90 percent urban for japan
0: Mm. it's so interesting and i guess um the, the thing that i think of when you're talking about some of that is also just something we observed and something that i guess the japanese are famous for which is a really uh, dedicated work ethic. And I remember seeing, you know, people sleeping on the trains on their commute in and out of the city and, uh, you know, just trying to ring every last usable hour of their day out for their employer. Um, And anecdotally, something quite funny, we'd see on like Friday evenings, you'd be walking through a really populated area in Kyoto or Tokyo particularly, um, and you'd just see locals getting obliterated like unbelievably drunk to the point where their friends were dragging them up escalators and through the streets because they couldn't walk anymore and obviously they were so exhausted and just needed to sort of i mean i don't know if you could speak to that that's a and it seemed like a very curious part of the culture to me (laughs)
1: Yeah, if you if you like to look for some proof of that, it doesn't just have to be anecdotal. Just go to uh, the Instagram channel called uh, Shibuya Meltdowns. Shibuya is S H I B U Y A. <S-H-I-B-U-Y-A>. It's That's exactly the name of the place. We uh, it's Shibuya <laughs> and uh, meltdown because people just. Uh, they look like they've fallen asleep very in a very deep state on the street. Uh, and that just goes to show how, how safe Japan can be. But it also shows how how much people want to just drown themselves in alcohol at the end of the week. Uh, so it's not a good thing. And that's the contradiction of Japan, I guess. You can have Zen. The monks are meditating in a temple. You get a bell. Boom, boom in Kyoto. But you could also have people getting drunk on the streets and just vomiting on the streets. So uh, there's that too.
0: It's a mad, mad world. Uh, I'm really curious about some of the other things you love, because obviously you have that unique local, but outsider perspective. Was that difficult? I mean, do you feel like you've, I guess it's another question, but do you feel like you've been, you're part of the furniture now? You've been welcomed like a local, I assume you're pretty fluent in Japanese these days. Yeah, so
1: I, when I first came to Japan, the problem was, was the language, as you can guess. So uh, the university program I went to, the first three years, they allow you to take classes in English. They provide some classes in English first. Those are what politics especially. You can't just learn them in Japanese straight away. But they provided us uh, English le- uh, Japanese lessons uh, a few times a week. So I went for Japanese classes, I think three times a week, uh, four hours each time, but it was always homework. So about at least three or four hours of homework homework each day. And after about three years of learning that you are supposed to be able to uh, read enough Japanese to write your thesis. Uh, so I, I studied history, so the history of international relations and I have to read the uh, diplomatic papers in Japanese. So by the fourth year I was uh, supposed to be able to read and write in Japanese and I forced myself to learn. Uh, and the discussions in the fourth year were all in Japanese. So I'm pretty happy they forced us to do it, although in my second year I really wanted to give up. Because uh, Japanese is completely different from English. I can read some kanji, the the Chinese characters that's used in Japanese because uh, I learned some Chinese in Singapore. But even then, it was difficult and I really wanted to give up. So I'm glad I've stuck through because now, I'd I'd say to get conversational in Japanese, that takes you about three to four years at least. Uh, And even if you're living here. And once you do that, it becomes much easier because you can then understand what's going on. Uh, And your housing contract is in Japanese. Your everything bureaucratic is in Japanese. Uh, So uh, I guess that's the first barrier. Uh, The second thing is, uh, the other barrier you have living as a foreigner in Japan is that you obviously look different. I don't look too different. So sometimes people mistake me for being Japanese. But if I speak for like 15 minutes with them, they were like, have you lived overseas before? Hmm. Uh, So I say, yes, I'm from Singapore. And they're like, oh, okay. But uh. For people who are who are uh, of different colors, like white, uh, black, you might be like, "Oh, it'll be like, oh, you're a foreigner," and twenty years later, you're still a foreigner. So I guess, uh, that's just because the, everybody here is uh is of about the same color. So if you're Asian, it can be quite quite a lot easier to blend in. But if you're not Asian, it can be uh a bit more difficult. I guess in Japan, mm. uh, that's one thing. The other thing is. Uh, the difficult part of living in Japan, uh, the bureaucracy. Like, when you move here for the first time, uh, I had to fill up, I think, nine forms, nine of the same form for my school. They have to submit it and file it in different places. Same photograph. Uh, and, and the thing is, you don't, don't just sign off. You have to write down your name, your address, and you sign because your address and your name are part of your signature in Japan. You have to write that, the long address, nine times. And, uh, in Japanese. And uh, that was at the start, on the first day. So I guess there's that barrier also. Mostly the language, I would say. Mm. Uh, Surprisingly, and the draw of Japan for me is that if you ask people, yes, people work hard, but they all seem to have one hobby, one interesting hobby. So everyone will be interested in one thing at least. Could be, let's say, making a guitar. Like somebody is making by hand a guitar uh, in his spare time. Or maybe this lady is making uh, origami cranes that are tiny. Maybe like uh, the size of your little pinky. Uh, Like the the nail on your little pinky. A very, very small thing. So everyone seems to have a small, interesting hobby that's kind of wacky. And that's what I like about Japanese friends because they all tend to have one thing that they are really into. So there's, there's that also.
0: What is that? Like, is that something that's cultivated, like they're encouraged in this, like at a school age to take up a particular hobby? Because the other thing is it's very much a culture of specialisation and even with the hobbies, there's specialisation. So, you know, I think about my upbringing and my parents were learn an instrument and take up five different sports and, you know, everyone was like renaissance men, you know, you were encouraged to take up ten hobbies of which you pursued Maybe none, <laughs> depending on your Same personality. Yeah. So I don't like I, I'm just interested that there, there is that specialization, that attention that seems to go hand in hand with that Japanese culture and way of life.
1: I guess it's because people grow up in a place where you get houses built by carpenters who specialize in one thing. So you you're not a carpenter for the whole house. You might be building just the joints for a door frame. Uh, just the top or you might be specializing in just making the door or the tatami mats. You never do everything. So uh, with all that specialization, you get something that's really out of the world. Like if you look at a tatami mat on the ground, uh, there's the edging. Somebody makes the edging of the tatami mat. You have to weave that. Uh, There are different grades, of course, and some are really, really nice. They have real gold in them. But just for the tatami mats themselves, the grass, you have different kinds of grass, comes from different regions. You have to specialize in different regions of grass to make a proper tatami mat. It can be thick, it can be thin, uh, and all those are dictated by what kind of house you make. So you need to know for a tea house, you have this tatami mat. For ordinary house, this this size. Uh, for the You have to match everything. Uh, and it's all very specialized. So when children grow up in that sort of environment, I guess they, they appreciate the small little things. And that's when they see, oh, if I'm interested in bugs, I should really find out about this bug, this one bug. And I've met lots of bug lovers in Japan. They are really (laughs) into the bugs. Like, let's say lakes of bugs and only lakes. (laughs) So people are fascinated in, in very interesting stuff. So that's the fun part about talking to Japanese people, I guess. That's great. Maybe it's maybe it's the environment. So you have to grow up in an environment where people take care of small things, and then you'll be
0: interested in something like that yourself. That's really insightful. That's really cool. It actually makes me think of kind of the industrial complex, you know, the industrial revolution and in a book I read um, by... Daniel Pink called Drive. And he spoke about, you know, after the industrial revolution, when everyone became cogs in the machine and you would specialize in one very specific aspect of the assembly line. And, um, it was very good for efficiency, but it was actually very poor for like job satisfaction because you didn't get to see something through to completion. And, um, you know, you can go into that a little bit deeper, but, I um, I, I wonder if that plays out the same or there are sufficient cultural differences that actually, you know, in your observation, Japanese people take a lot of satisfaction from that very specialized form of work. And that's just a difference in legacy and history.
1: So uh, what I found interesting was uh, after university, I worked for a year in Tokyo as uh, in, a, in an e-commerce company of all things. Uh, I, I quit the job after a year because I was bored of sitting in, a, in the desk shop, But to run this travel company actually. But uh, for that one year, what I saw in the company was that uh, people don't specialize right away. Uh, you enter as a fresh graduate, and you are put through all the different departments. So, let's say if you studied political science, uh, you go into the software department, then you go into the finance department, uh, and a few years later, you might be in the you might be in management, but you be you you'll go to the logistics department. So, people in Japan, when you go to a big company, especially, they rotate you around different departments every few years. And by the time after about ten to fifteen years in a company, you should have gone through all the departments. By then, you should have been able to generalize generalize what's going on in the company and specialize in a solution for the problem that the company is facing. So in, in Toyota, for example, uh, the at least management management level people, they are put through through many many different kinds of departments before they end up in their final department. So I guess that's how Japan overcomes the problems uh, of having too much uh, too much specialization. Uh, and you get this general, general uh, people who can do general stuff, but with one specialism also. Mm. Uh, so that's for big companies. For smaller companies though, uh, like if, let's say if you're a chef, if you work in Kaiseki, the cuisine that we have in Kyoto, you can train for 20 years under master. Let's say you, you graduate when you're 20, you, you work for the master for 20 years. And at 40, what the master is supposed to help you do is You've been working as under him as a chef, right? But for after you graduate, after you finish working with him, you're supposed to set up your own shop. He'll support you. Uh, he'll show you how show you the ropes. But then that's when you have to manage the finances. You have to manage hiring the food, come up with your own new menus. So again, it's you're supposed to specialize. But if you look at it, actually, it's generalization also. Mm. So that's the fascinating part about Japan's specialization. It's actually. Being general, yet specialist. So uh, that, I guess, makes Kyoto interesting because you get many of these specialists, let's say, in charge of making picture frames. And they only do picture frames. But by the end of it, by the end of working for 20 years under picture frame maker, you should be able to run your own picture frame shop. So that's the goal for the better masters. They will want you to set up your own shop and then it'll be like a, uh, like a network of shops that are linked together. So when you go to a restaurant who is run by this chef or uh, who is trained under a master, you'll be told, oh, I've trained under this master. And you go to this other shop also. So people go to different shops by the same master, the different students of that one master, and that becomes a whole network for them. So I guess uh, that was something I only realized after working in Kyoto, in Tokyo. And then by coming to Kyoto, looking at all the chefs and everything, that's something I found out along the way.
0: It's fascinating. It's so interesting. Is that is that tradition still alive with the new generations? Because I think about small business culture all over the world, but it's very visible to me in Australia. You know, we say something like 60% of all business in Australia has one to six employees. It's a micro business economy. And, you know, anyone with an idea and an internet connection will, you know, get started. And some people, I guess, you know, do their time. They do a few stints in a few different restaurants and cafes before they decide to go out on their own. But, you know, it's not necessarily common that you would you know, study under a master and then, you know, really earn your stripes and 20 years later decide to take the leap. There isn't perhaps that culture of reverence that, you know, everyone's looking to fast track. No one wants to pay their dues. People want to start in the middle or at the top, you know? So I wonder if the newer generations have been subverting that very classical... Um, model
1: if you speak to people in the venture capital side uh, in Tokyo especially or in Fukuoka the places where uh, there are more startups yes there are people who can uh, overcome this and let's say uh, the people who run Rakuten for example the big companies right now or uh, let's say who else Actually, I can't too, too, think of too many offhand, but uh, you could skip this and let's say go into venture capital right away. And there are lots of people doing that in Tokyo right now. But lots, meaning maybe like 1%? I would say that 99% of people are still going to, still trying to look for bigger businesses to work for, bigger firms. uh, And the rest... uh. In Japan, it's 90% small businesses, uh, 10% large. So uh, I think 90% of Japanese businesses are smaller than 50 people or something like that. Uh, Don't quote me on that if you search, but uh, small businesses. So um, most people would say in Kyoto, Kyoto is a smaller city, uh, they would work for their family-run businesses or they would work in Osaka uh, in a bigger company. And a small percentage, maybe like let's say less than ten percent, would still work as uh, work under a master. In Kyoto, there's a lot, there's a lot more, a lot more of a chance to work under a master because Kyoto is the cultural capital. We have lots of uh, old arts here. But if you go to a big city, uh, you do get more people working in bigger companies. Uh, mm, so I don't think there's a trend like of Japanese people working in under masters, uh, all that much. But there's that still. There's that ten percent, I guess.
0: Yeah, look that's great. I think it's it's really nice to have a culture that does have that respect for tradition, that reverence for experience. It's certainly something we loved coming across, you know, like even in very simple things that you'd go into a little store in Kyoto where they're making a particular kind of cookie with red bean paste and the guy's doing it and his son's there and he's been there doing it every day for 50 years and the store's been there for 500 years and producing exactly the same cookie in exactly the same way with the same cast iron molds the entire time. It's just an, an amazing you know, legacy, especially coming from a place like Australia where, you know, we have one of the oldest civilizations on earth. But in terms of most of the businesses that you come across and, you know, things like that, it's it's very it's very recent.
1: You might have read of uh, of the one thousand twenty year shop. Uh, the one selling rice cakes. Uh, in Kyoto, there's one shop that's been around for 1,020 years. Wow. I think they were featured in the New York Times a few months ago. Uh, it's called Ichimonjiya. Ichi, S, uh, I-C-H-I-M-O-N, uh, so I-C-H-I-M-O-N-J-I-Y-A. So Ichimonjia is a uh, shop selling rice cakes in front of a shrine. They have been grilling the same rice cake pounded by hand uh, and they, they drizzle some malt sugar on top. Uh, 25 generations of same family and only women from ha- that family have been allowed to take over the business so they're still there same location same product one product uh they sell it for about i think 6 uh 6 Australian dollars uh, eight sticks of mochi right the rice cakes and tea wow so coming from singapore where the country is uh well the country itself the 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 country itself is hundreds of years old, but it was only, uh, I think, less than I think something like 60-something years mm. since Singapore got independence, uh, since 1965. So the oldest businesses in Singapore, like maybe 100 years old, maybe 120. When I come here, it's like 1,000 years old. And I'm like, oh, wow.
0: Yeah, and if, <laughs> so there's a, what I really enjoy. if there's a business that's 100 years old, it's probably very, it's unrecognizable from how it was when it began, let alone to still have the one item that's... <laughs> It's amazing.
1: Yeah, so I like to tell people that I work in a shrine. My workplace is a 1,300-year-old a shrine. Uh, and then I can point out buildings and can say, oh, that building is only 400 years old.
0: <laughs> so tell us a little bit more about the cultural differences. You've already mentioned Kyoto is a smaller city, that it's the cultural capital. You've got things like the shrines and the temples. and Is, and the, uh, is it the red red temple, red shrine with the... Really iconic uh, with red archers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the Tory yeah, gates. Yeah, the, the,
1: the red archers called Tory <clears> gates. <throat> there are 10,000 of them there. Uh, and uh, that's where I lead my tours. That's where the Forest uh, Bathing uh, Virtual Tour is done also, like virtually done there. Uh, and the thing is, you asked about a cultural difference. So I guess, okay, To to just introduce... Kyoto, contrasted with other places in, in Japan, uh, it was the capital for a thousand years since the, uh, since the late 700s and all the way till maybe 100 years, hundred years plus ago uh, when it became Tokyo. So for a long time, uh, everything came here. It was the metropolis. So you have uh, a city of one million people or so living uh, amid three mountain three mountain ranges And everything came in here from fish to treads, fine treads, to gold, to coal, to to vegetables of all kinds. So everything came here. The best stuff was here to serve the emperor and, uh, of course, the bureaucracy. So you get all the specialist arts here because of that. And if you look at other parts of Japan, uh, I lived in Tokyo for five years, studying and working. So I never noticed buildings that were... It's very rare to see a building purely made of wood and just joinery. Right now, people use drywall and all the normal, uh, all the usual stuff you have. But in Kyoto, it's very common to see a house made of wood and live in a house made of wood. Uh, that are made of joints with no nails, and uh, those things are only found because the craftspeople are here, and they they, they can't be moving throughout the country. They, they could, but it's it's expensive. So most of the the nice old stuff is found in Kyoto, and uh, that's what Kyoto is known for. But What people don't know is that Kyoto also has the modern stuff like Nintendo. Nintendo is a Kyoto company. Uh, They make the Switch and all that now but they have been around for 133 years. Maybe it's 134. 133 years at least. Uh, They are a Kyoto company. They started off making playing cards and now they make the Switch. They're in Kyoto and uh, you can see it from Mount Inari. Uh, And you might know of Super Mario. The creator of Super Mario, uh, he actually went up to Mount Inari every day as a child. That's what the people there say. So, Maybe every week, at least. Maybe I'm exaggerating, but at least every week. And if you think about the uh, the games that he designed, uh, the the creator of Super Mario, he designed things like uh, uh, Star Fox. And Star Fox is a game where you fly through gates, right, At the very first stage. Mm. I'm not sure if then then you might remember.
0: Oh yeah, I remember. It was a, it was an epic game. I love it. Star Fox. Yeah, so you best. fly
1: through gates of different si- uh, different sizes, right? And they actually the gates of Mount Inari. You fly through the red gates of Mount Inari. So uh, that's something that came out of him just playing in a shrine. And then you get this modern mix of Kyoto plus the old stuff, which is why Kyoto is quite special to me. Mm. I'm not and sure if I'm going off, off point, but...
0: No, that's perfect <laughs> <just curfie laughs> to think. It's it's great to get a bit of insight. And we loved it. We thought it was a wonderful city. And I, I love that there was that lovely mix of new and old. And it seemed like they'd done a really wonderful job of... I guess, preserving some of those old buildings, because like you said, you know, when things aren't made of steel and glass and concrete, they're not necessarily built to to survive thousands of years. And to have the craftsmen still around to be able to maintain those buildings is is quite a feat, let alone just resisting the desire to increase your density by changing, you know, knocking older buildings down and building, you know, new whiz bang things, because that's what happens in most cities around the world.
1: Yeah, Kyoto made a decision, I think, 20 years ago to cap the height of buildings. So for a time, people were building up like 10-storey buildings, 12-storey buildings, and people started complaining because in the past, uh, hundreds of years ago, there was a restriction on, on height of buildings. Your buildings could never be higher than the Empress, uh, Empress Palace. So there was that cap. Uh, every Everything was two or three storeys high because of that. Is that the and golden Palace? Now, thankfully, uh, no, the uh, the palace in the center of the city, the right. Imperial Palace, uh nothing can be higher than it. That was uh the rule for hundreds of years. Then uh when development came in the 50s, 60s, 70s, taller buildings came up, and thankfully about 10 years ago, they put a stop to it. They said uh in the center of the city at least, we have to cap everything to about uh 10 meters, so about uh two to three stories. And thanks to that, uh we can sort of maintain the, the profile of the city. It's quite a low-lying city, Kyoto. Uh, but think of the financial. Implications: The government is giving up on a lot of tax, a lot of mm. uh, property tax, by just giving that rule. But, um, but that's just one thing. Uh, Kyoto is Kyoto has been destroying a lot of its own uh, wooden structures lately. Lately, meaning since the 1960s, because of development, and a lot of old machiya, the houses in the the townhouses in the center of the city, they have been destroyed to to build hot- hotels and and uh, restaurants and all that. So. There's that aspect also. And in Japan, there's very little protection for historical building. So even today, I would say um, a lot of old machia, the wooden townhouses, they are being destroyed day by day. So there's that also. Temples are being preserved, but houses, normal houses, Hmm. that's not well preserved just of yet.
0: Hopefully they get around to that because it's such a beautiful part of the city.
1: I don't think they will because there's a, the, the problem with uh, tax. So uh, hmm. you need to collect taxes, uh, new buildings. Uh, by the way, buildings that are old, they are, banks just value them at zero. So typically the rule is after 20 years, a house is worth zero. The only thing that's worth uh, anything is the land. Yeah, sure. So, so that's why people get loans because then you can uh, have value in your house and you, you get loans for that. Whereas if you repair an old house, you get no loans for that. And uh, repairing an old house does cost a lot more than a new house, building a new one. So I don't think people will preserve their old houses. Uh, the destruction will go on. Uh, and the government can't prevent that because people own their land and uh, people are quite proud of their land rights. So uh, they don't want controls on how their building looks. Uh, that's one problem that Japan will have, not just Kyoto.
0: Mm. Excellent. It's a. Uh, it's yeah. It's a really amazing city, Kyoto, and I. I, I love that there was that historical element, obviously, with the different temples and shrines and beautiful old buildings. That it was such a rideable city. We got around on bikes, which seemed like a very popular thing to be doing. Uh, and but there were also like really kind of like hipster areas and really interesting shops and beautiful ceramics, but not in necessarily that traditional style, things that were quite contemporary. And and, um, there was a lot of creativity and color and design. It was just a very, very cool place where there seemed to be a lot of value in the arts and culture. Is that something Kyoto is known for typically?
1: So uh, when we talk about our small businesses, the thing is that they tend to be closed, they're not open to everyone. So as a tourist, if you come, you'll find the shops that are selling. Uh, they can look nice, yes. Uh, they they do sell stuff, but these are more geared towards uh, consumers, not just not just foreign tourists, but also uh, local tourists and even locals, because the the price is a lot lower. Uh, when I'm talking about Kyoto's treasures, they are really treasures. Stuff that you don't buy all the time. You buy them once in your life. Let's say, let's say a slipper that costs like five hundred dollars for your wedding. Uh, you need to buy it once uh, so the thing is for those shops you have to go and pre-order you have to go to the shop they'll serve you tea you talk for a whole day about the shoe and uh, you order your shoe and a few months later your shoe will be done so that's that and uh, that's the, the stuff that Kyoto is known for among, in, mm. in Japan when you order a building, for example, it doesn't come out after a week. It comes out after like two years. So Kyoto has that specialty in stuff that are small and very expensive, and that's what tourists don't come for because you don't go on a holiday buying, uh, buying let's say a brocade costing like ten thousand dollars. So uh, if you're interested in that, there's always that to look at, but there's there's also the barrier, the language barrier, because they'll be like okay, are you actually going to buy something or are you going to just waste our time just for a look? So there's that problem for Kyoto shops. They, they do want to sell some stuff, but it's not worth making something really nice and selling it at a low price. So in the hipster areas, you mentioned hipster area, there are a few of those, uh, and they do sell stuff at a lower price, but it, sometimes they don't sell stuff that's made in Kyoto even because the stuff that's actually made in Kyoto, they are too high priced to be bought by everyone. Mm. so there's that two aspects to commerce in kyoto
0: i'd love to know and it's a little bit you know left field but you've obviously spent nine years in japan now are there favorites for you parts of the country that you love to go and visit that maybe aren't on the traditional tourist radar that you you know you think are really special or unique
1: the place I'm moving to <laughs> uh, the place I'm moving to is called Ryujin Mura Ryu means dragon Ryujin means uh, god so the dragon god village because there are many waterfalls there and uh, in Asia the belief is that waterfalls uh, waterfalls, the sea the clouds are where dragons live dragons breathe out water not fire so uh, that place was known for its uh, spirituality a lot of people go there for meditation and uh, I'm interested in that place because of the mountains and there's a, it, it's actually part of a UNESCO site. Uh, the whole region, it's called the Kumano region. There's a whole long trail that leads from Kyoto to different shrines in the Kumano region. And that, that's been around for over a thousand years. Kumano so uh, Ryujin Mura... Yeah, Kumano Kodo. So the Ryujin Mara, where, where, where I want to live, it used to be part of it and it's not now formally part of the UNESCO site but they're trying to restore a path, uh, an old path in the village that leads to one of those shrines and eventually they want to register as a UNESCO site also. And I would recommend going to these places. Maybe... If you come to Kyoto, yes, please do spend a few days here in Kyoto because we have lots of temples and things to do. But afterwards, if you want to socially distance yourself, go search Kumano Kodo. uh, K-U-M-A-N-D-O K-O-D-O Kumano Kodo. And that's a UNESCO site where you can hike for three to... no, not three days, but maybe five to seven days. There'll be places for you to stay. You can stay in different inns. Uh, If you go to Hot Springs, Hot Springs soak in them after a long day's worth of hike and hiking and... Uh, it's not too difficult. There's a lot of walking involved, but there's even a baggage transfer service from in to in. So all you have to do is to carry a day pack. And uh, if you if you do go there to the Kumano Kodo, let me know and uh, you could volunteer at the farm. Oh, I'll need people to <laughs> help plant more trees and
0: flowers. Sounds like a really nice thing to do. It's uh, I loved that about Japan. Just that you can walk these old. Uh, I don't know if they're old, um, you know, trails, you know, old transport trails, but they're so well set up for that, that you can transport your luggage, but also, you know, you arrive in an inn in the evening and you're exhausted and they just start bringing you food. You don't even have to look at a menu. It's like an omakase. And then you sit in a, you know, you sit in a rear car and you just soak and relax. And then you're back on the road the next day. It's just the most relaxing, um, like roadside in experience you could possibly have. It's a beautiful way to hike and to see the country. We did it on um, the Nakasendo trail, which was sort of closer to the, the center, closer to Tokyo, I guess, and um, Mount Fuji. but. Really cool. Really good experience.
1: I'm actually calling you from a house that's on the Nakasendo. Ah. So, uh, I'm at the last stop of the Nakasendo because it ends in Kyoto, right? So it starts from Tokyo, ends in Kyoto. Uh, I'm in a place called the Awata Gucci. Awata Guchi is the stop before uh, Sanjo Bridge, which is the final stop of the Nakasendo. So my house is on the road uh, on the Nakasendo itself Very <laughs> right cool. now. So it's uh, that's in Kyoto. Uh, but then the house in the village, that's the older route, not called the Kumano Kodo. So you could technically walk from uh, the Nakasendo, Tokyo, all the way to Kyoto, and then all the way down south to uh, the village. So uh, that's
0: if you have lots of time. Set aside a couple of months.
1: <laughs> uh, two months.
0: <laughs> wow. Very cool.
1: Okay, maybe, maybe if you walk fast, maybe three weeks, but yeah. <laughs>
0: Okay. Well, we'll um, we'll finish up in a sec, but I just wanted to get a thought from you, Lee. I guess about um, I'm really interested in cultural narratives and the differences in cultures. You know, like the world's full of very interesting people, and, and you know, cultures have certain similarities. And I think a lot of um, the ways we identify with other people and as a people in in a particular place is through story and. I'm just interested if you could share with us a story that maybe you share with guests that gives a bit of insight into whether it's, you know, local culture or Japanese culture more generally, uh, that would help people understand the way of life um, of Japanese people and how they maybe, they see themselves as a, being a bit different from other places. Sorry, awfully so worded question, but maybe you
1: get what I'm talking about. One story that might might show you how this works. So, not everyone knows the story. It's not a very very popular story, but at the shrine that uh the the shrine we were talking about Fushimi Inari, uh you see that the main uh, mascot there is the fox. The fox is the messenger of the god there. Uh, so you see this, these statues of foxes there, and most people ask why the fox, and people will say, oh well, this mountain used to have foxes, so there are foxes around being the messengers. But that's not it. If you look into the, into the history of the fox at Mount Unari, you'll find that it came from India. And this story, okay, this story will take some time. Um, there lived two thousand years ago a woman in India who loved children. She loved children, but she could never conceive. She could never have her own children. So she thought, I want to have kids around me. What should I do? She offered them sweets, candy. Came around, many of them came to the house. She was very happy in the daytime because they played with her. But at night, she went home. She fell asleep with no children in sight because they are all gone home. And she was very sad at night. So she thought, let me have my own children. I shall eat some of them tomorrow when they come. When they come for the sweets. If I eat a child, they should come off my womb. So she started eating children. Um, 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 she ate one child nothing happened three three months later um, 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 another child an experiment nothing happened thankfully she fell asleep and when she fell asleep a Hindu god went to her dreams it told her don't don't eat children why don't you adopt children Uh, then the children will become your own so she listened to those gods the Hindu gods and she stopped eating children and started running an orphanage ran an orphanage with hundreds of children when she passed away many many years later well, a fox came down. The children saw a fox fly down and it took her up to the heavens. That became the story of redemption. The fox is there to save anyone who is doing bad stuff like eating children, but if they stop, it's there to save them. And that story came to Japan. But interesting story, the interesting thing is how. So in India, that story of the fox has mostly been forgotten. But I have lots of guests from Indonesia who say, hey, I remember this story, but I was told something about this when I was young. And that's because Indonesia, especially Java, used to have lots of Hindus. It was a Hindu country a long, long time ago. And now it's not. But the thing is, probably what happened was from India, the story went down by the seas to Indonesia. The sea is, uh, the winds blow there quite frequently. And from there, it went up the Straits of Singapore. It probably went through the Straits of Taiwan too, went up to Japan. And 1,600 years ago when Buddhism arrived in Japan, Hindu stories had gone into Buddhism too. So that story of the fox probably reached the capital, Kyoto. And that's when the fox started appearing here. So that's one, one story about the fox in Maunenari. It is for a Shinto shrine, a Japanese shrine. But it has come all the way from India, from Hinduism, and through the streets of Singapore probably. So it tells you a, a story of international trade. Even 1,600 years ago, where you'd think that it's not globalized. But Japan, 1,600 years ago, that was the end of the Silk Route. So yeah, I guess this tells you a bit more about Japan. People in Japan like to think themse- think of them- themselves as just Japanese. But if you look into Japan's history, it's actually made up of different cultures too. And the special thing about Japan is that all these things from different cultures have been made Japanese. Uh, so you see th- something that looks Japanese right now, but if you look b- below, you actually see all these other strands of other
0: cultures. Mm.
1: So I hope that's that's the story that <laughs> that reveals to you a bit more about your question.
0: Yeah, you I, love your I love that. I love that, Lee. I think that's that's a really beautiful story, and it's it it tells what's probably quite familiar. You know that a lot of national identity is a process of distillation, but there's always ingredients that come before that, and if you go back far enough, you can find them, and it's such a fascinating thing to be able to do. Uh, I really appreciate your time. It's been great to hear about your life and about Japanese culture and the way of life over there. Uh, It's been really insightful and I really encourage everyone to jump on. um, Go visit the Craft Tabby website because they've got an amazing website, an amazing company. They've got a hostel in Gion. They've got um, some awesome virtual tours and experiences you can do on Airbnb. And you can also follow, follow Lee and Maury's adventures. Uh, renovating his farm in the countryside on YouTube, which the links are on the website. Is that right?
1: Yep. The links are on the website. The awesome. farm is called Rio So you'll find a link there too.
0: Awesome. Thanks very much for your time, Lee. And uh, thanks, Mari. Thank we'll, you, Dan.
1: Uh, <laughs> we'll on see the table you both. She's sleeping.
0: Okay. That's good. We'll see you both soon. Take care, mate.
1: All right. Thank you.
0: Thanks for tuning in today. Our show is made possible by Localing Australia. We create authentic local experiences for people who don't like tours. In fact, we've created over 5,000 of them, but we're pretty new to podcasting. So we really appreciate your support as we figure things out. We'd love to hear what you thought of the show and about some other places you'd be keen for us to take you. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe, review and or share us. I'm Daniel Platt, and thanks for listening to Places With People.